Spooky. It's the pulpit mic, or my mic, Jacob. All right, it's still real hot. I'm going to bring it down a little bit on the preaching mic. There we go. Can you hear me? All right. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 53 through chapter 14, verse 12, where the Holy Scriptures read, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, still ringing a little bit, he's coming from his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? When then did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Then chapter 14, it begins, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we come to you today asking once again that you would be our teacher through your word. Father, I just pray for this church. Father, I just pray for safety, spiritual safety against spiritual attacks, against the world, the flesh, and the devil, Lord, who are our three enemies. And so we know, Father, that it is only by your Spirit that we can conquer these things, and we do so by faith, as we just sang. So, Father, we just ask that this church would walk in holiness, that every person here would see it as their mission to make this church stronger, that they wouldn't look to others and expect everyone else to do the work of the ministry, but that they would rise up as your body, as you've called them to, to each find their part and use their giftings, whether natural giftings or spiritual giftings, to make this body strong in order to bring glory to you and help us reach the lost and build disciples as you've called us to. Father, we need leaders. We need workers for the ministry to do all that you've called us to. We thank you for the ones that you've provided, but Father, we ask that you would raise up more more who would share in this labor, who would live their lives not for the things of this world with religion as a tack-me-on, as something to do here and there on weekends, but as living for you to be seen as the ultimate affection and joy of our lives, the highest calling, the greatest calling, the greatest joy. So, Father, soften hearts, change hearts, remove our, our idolatry, 
Help us to see the glory of the risen Jesus, and we pray come quickly, Lord Jesus, and help us to be ready for that quick and soon coming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Don't shoot the messenger. This common expression holds a common sense meaning, which means not to attack the messenger when we don't like the message. And why not? Because if you do, that message that you very well might desperately need to hear won't be heard because the messenger will be dead. So don't shoot them. Listen to them. Because if you don't, it may lead to dire outcomes. For instance, Tigranes, it's not a common name we use, but Tigranes the Great, born in 140 BC, was the king of Armenia, which was one of the strongest nations of his day, and its kingdom borders were expanded so far that he was given the title, the Great King. It's a pretty great title, the Great King. But when the first messenger came to inform this great king that the great general Lucius from Rome was coming with his massive army to attack him, do you know what he did? He didn't like the message, and so he had that messenger's head removed. And so consequently, as one historian recounts, Tigranes the Great idly and ignorantly sat there when war was surrounding him at his very doorsteps. And why? Because he killed a messenger. He shot the messenger who brought him news that was bad, and since he didn't want to hear it, he cut off the source of the message and only brought around him those who would flatter him. You know, when it comes to bearing bad news, if we are going to bear bad news in a good way, we must avoid the temptation to kill the messenger. We have to. And this isn't such an easy thing especially in our day and age. Sure, we don't literally kill somebody typically when they tell us something we don't like, but metaphorically we do. Don't like the medical advice that your doctor has given you? Well, change your doctor. Don't like the news that you're hearing on the channel? Well, change the channel. Don't like what your friends are telling you? Find new friends. See, we live in a culture that has ingrained it in us to remove anyone and anything that brings us a message that we don't want to hear. And the worst part about this is that we tend to also do this spiritually. We absolutely do. See, it's bad enough when we do this with other stuff, like the things we just mentioned, but it's even greatly more so worse when we do this with God because we put ourselves at risk that is so much greater than a measly invading Roman army. In fact, we could say that that's actually peanuts compared to that. And so when it comes to our understanding of God, we must not dismiss the truth of God by stubbornly shooting the messenger. It's a bad idea. So don't do it. Let's pray. Let's go home. Sound good? No. Let's look at the three ways that we avoid doing that. And here they are. We avoid shooting the messenger by killing our pride, our pleasures, and third, our praise. So at this point in Jesus' story... A major shift has occurred in Jesus' life and ministry. And that shift began in chapter 12. Well, what was that shift? It was the rejection of Jesus. 
See, at this point in his ministry, the majority of Israel had rejected him. And as we keep going further into Matthew's book, it's only going to get worse and worse. In chapter 12, we saw the religious leaders attribute Jesus' miraculous works to who? Satan. He attributed him to Satan. And what was that sin called? Anybody awake? The unpardonable sin, right? That's what was going on in that chapter. It was the unpardonable sin. And through that chapter, we saw the crowd. What did they respond? How did they respond to Jesus? With unbelief. Over and over and over. The, the, the narrative is turning towards rejection. It's turning towards unbelief. And so now here, we see the rejection of Jesus by his hometown and the rulers of that region. Let's look at that first one. All right, now where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Okay, good. And his family fled with him when he was a baby to where? To Egypt. And then after murderous King Herod was dead, his family eventually moved lastly to where? Nazareth. Good. Everybody passed the test. And so Nazareth was the village that Jesus spent his childhood in. That's where he grew up at. And so as verse 53 tells us, after Jesus finished teaching the crowds in parables, he went back to his hometown to pay them a visit by teaching the people in the synagogue. And so in verse 57, it tells us how they responded to him, which was how? They were offended. They were greatly offended by him. And this Greek word for offended is actually the Greek word scandalone, which is where we get our word scandal from, Right? And so what they were basically saying here, what's telling us, Matthew's telling us, is that they were scandalized by Jesus. Why were they scandalized by him? Because they were much too familiar with him. See, here was Jesus with all his wisdom, with all of his mighty works, and they couldn't question it. Without a doubt, like, they saw it. It was over and over again. This stuff wasn't done in a corner as Pilate as will be later said in Pilate's situation, this was public. This happened everywhere. And so here was Jesus with these mighty works, and this is why in our text it says that they were astonished about it. Well, why were they astonished about it? Because they couldn't make two and two of things. They couldn't figure out how this Jesus, this boy that they had grown up with, who was so ordinary, the carpenter's boy, could do these great things. Isn't his mother called Mary, they asked? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are his sisters not here with us? Do you see where they're going with this? Do you see what they're doing? They were missing the message because of the ordinary way that it came to them. It was too ordinary. It was too commonplace. They couldn't see through its veil to see what was really going on, to see reality. Think about this. They knew Jesus as a boy. Right? They saw him grow up. They saw his humble origins. They saw his ordinary life. And so when ordinary Jesus shows up with his very unordinary message, they couldn't make sense of it. They were blinded from the truth by the means of the message. And so what did they do? They proverbially shot the messenger. And that was a very dumb thing to do. A very dumb thing to do which is why none of us, thankfully today, ever shoot the messenger when we don't like the message. We've learned past this point, right? None of us ever do this, right? Wrong. 
How about this? When someone calls us out for our sin, do we ever ignore their rebukes because we're like, hey, you know what? I saw you do the same, the same thing once. Shut up. You know, like, who are you to talk? I don't know about you. I've actually never done that with my spouse before, so maybe you haven't either, at least this morning. When someone tries to teach us something, how about this one, about the Bible, do we ever roll our eyes and think, you probably shouldn't be talking because last month I talked to you and boy, were you wrong on a different subject. Anybody ever done that one before? Maybe you think, oh, actually, you should be quiet and I should be teaching you. The truth is, church, sometimes we aren't all that different from the Nazarenes here when it comes to shooting the messenger, especially if we think that messenger is unqualified to give us said message. But if we do that, if we shoot the messenger, do you know what happens? Bad things. Because we won't hear that potentially very important message that we need to hear. Are we ever guilty of being theological Goldilocks when it comes to this stuff? What do I mean by that? We want everything just right. We want it our way, you know? The Burger King motto. Of course we do. Oh, I don't like that preacher. They're too deep. Oh, I don't like that preacher. They preach for too long. And that's a pagan thought right there, for the record. <laughs> oh, I don't care for that preacher. They're too dry. They're too old. Oh, they're too young. Goldilocks. This is exactly the kind of stuff my dad preached on two weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 13, if you were here for that message. Oh, I'm of Paul. Oh, no, I don't, I, Paul's okay, but I'm of Apollos. Oh, nice, I'm of Christ, right? Like this lofty nitpickiness. What was the point? The point was, if you look at that text, if you're here for that message, the messenger is not what's important. What's important? The message. The message is what's important. And so if we shoot the messenger every time we don't like something about them, their hairdo, their coat, whatever, we're going to continually miss hearing the message, which means we're going to be at great risk. This is why in 1 Timothy, uh, old Paul writes to young Pastor Timothy, and here's what he says. Every young pastor should have this in their tool belt, ready to go at all times. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. What's he saying there? Don't let people shoot you for your youth because they don't like the young messenger. Don't let people do that in your church. That's what he's telling them. Do you know what it is that causes us to shoot the messenger, whether it's because they're too young, they're too old, they're too long, whatever? Do you know what it is? It's pride. It's our first point. Pride causes us to shoot the messenger because we think we're better than them. That's exactly what it is. Pride causes us to think, who does this person think they are telling me what to do and how to live my life? They should apply that to themselves a little bit more. This is why Jesus quotes back to them that little proverbial saying in verse 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. See, what he's getting at here is he's telling us that familiarity blinds us from the message. Look, most of you didn't know me as a kid, praise God. Some of you did. Uh, 
But I would venture to say that the more you knew me as a kid, especially as a teenager, you can nod, Mom, especially as a teenager, an older teenager, the more difficult it would be to sit under my preaching. Am I right on that one? Of course it would be, right? That's a natural obstacle. That's what we're talking about here. Why? Because the natural mentality is to shut down the message because of the messenger. This is why... Okay, this is a pastoral ministry approach, but some pastors take the approach of ministry where they keep everyone in their congregation kind of at this arm's length different, uh, distance. There we go. Arm's length distance. Say that 10 times fast. Why do they do that? Because they know this truth, which is that if people start to see them up close with all their cracks and sinful flaws, do you know what they're going to be tempted to do? Shoot the messenger. That's exactly what they're going to be tempted to do. Who's, been, who's ever struggled with that before with a pastor? I struggle with that with myself, and I am the pastor here, right? So, of course, we struggle with this. Can pastors act immature? Yes. <laughs> Double yes from our music team who helps. Can pastors act impatiently with their spouse and children? Once. Of course they can. I didn't say once how I meant this morning, right? So... And if we aren't careful, here's the point. We can use those flaws as an excuse to ignore a message that is spiritual life or death. We can easily do that. In fact, our hearts naturally want to do that. Now, disclaimer here. I'm not saying that this gives pastors carte blanche to be just terrible. Right? That's not what we're talking about here. Pastors don't have carte blanche to do that. They actually have to meet the spiritual qualifications outlined in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and they have to meet those qualifications despite being sinners who sin. Now, we're not going to jump into that, but you get the idea, right? Which is why on that very verse right there, what does Paul tell Timothy to do? Right after he tells him not to let anyone look down on him or shoot him for his youth, he goes on to remind them to set an example for the flock in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. You see the balance here? And so, yes, as sinners, pastors are flawed, but we can't use their flaws as an excuse to ignore biblical truth because we're all tempted to do that. So we cannot use those as an excuse for disobedience. Am I on the same page with that? Good. All right. Now, with that arm's length distance approach to ministry, I personally don't take that approach, so many of you probably know many of my flaws, but I think this text gives us a powerful reason why that's not a good approach. And here's what it is. Think about this with Jesus, okay? The Nazarenes saw Jesus grow up in childhood. They saw his flaws up close, right? And how many flaws were there? None. <laughs> Trick almost got a few people there, found some heretics today. None. There were no flaws. They saw Jesus' perfect life, his sinlessness. And yet, what did they do? They found a way to blame the messenger and shoot the messenger in order to justify their unbelief. And that's what the human heart does. We will look for any excuse to justify our unbelief. And this tells us something. It tells us that when it comes to human bias, that's really what we're talking about today in our unbelief discussion here, it tells us that when there's a will, there's a way. 
And so when the human heart is hardened against God, what is the will to do? Shoot whatever messenger comes along with a message from God that our hearts hate, even if that messenger is the perfect holy son of God. And if you need proof for that, I would encourage you to skip ahead several chapters to the cross and see where they literally kill the messenger. Why were the Nazarenes' hearts hardened against God? Two reasons, at least. Uh, One, because of the ordinariness of his person, and secondly, because of the ordinariness, that's a fun word to say a lot, ordinariness of his plan. When it comes to the ordinariness of Christ's person, what did they get? A meek and mild Messiah. They got a man from Nazareth. And remember what Nathaniel said in John chapter 1 about Nazareth? He got pretty prejudiced. He's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, really? That place? And why? Because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He didn't look how they thought they sh- he should look. And why should they have known better? Because the Old Testament prophets told us how he would look. Let me read three chapters here from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is speaking of Christ. Hundreds of years before his birth. Let's keep going. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And here's this part. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I've never thought of this before until this week studying this text, and here's the thing I thought of that I've never thought of before. Ready, listen? Here's what it is. Have you ever wondered why Jesus came this way? Why he came with such humility with such meekness? I mean, think of an all-powerful, sovereign God. Why would he come in a form totally different than that? Have you ever thought about that before? Why? What's the purpose? Is it just to show us that we should be meek and mild? I don't think that's part of it. I don't think that's the whole thing. Here's the thing I thought of. I think it's because, at least in part, it was a picture of his unordinary plan. Right? Of his simple plan. This plan was so ordinary, okay? It was so simple and straightforward that humans would miss it. They're too familiar with it in order to be able to see it, right? That's the problem that we have with our hearts. It's too familiar, so we miss it. And so Christ came as a symbol of what that plan was. It was literally a living illustration. Here's what we're talking about here. In 2 Kings chapter 5, I think this is a helpful illustration, but when the Syrian general Naaman had leprosy, who did he go to? Elisha. Right? Because he heard of Israel's great God, and he's like, well, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to get healing. So what does he do? He collects his wealth. He gets his mighty sword, and you know, polishes it up, and gets all his armor, and brings his servants. He takes, gets this letter from the king of Syria, a letter of recommendation. Okay? He's coming with his, you know, his qualifications, with his resume, and he's like, here, I want healing. I'm a great man. I would love this. Give this to me. I deserve it. And so... He comes to Elisha ready to do this great act, whatever great act he must do to receive this healing. And it's kind of funny, actually, because if you know this story, what happens when he gets there? Knocks on his door, and does Elisha come to the door and greet him? No. 
He sends one of his servants, and he's like, oh, yeah. Uh, he says, go wash in the River Jordan. And is Naaman like, okay, I'll do that. No, he's ticked. He's furious. He's all being all grumpy and storms off, and his servants are like, we probably should just do it, you know? Like, get over your pride, basically. But he's furious about it. Now, why is, why is Naaman so furious? It's because he's furious of the ordinary means of healing that Elisha gives him. It's so simple. Even, I mean, could a five-year-old walk down to the Jordan River and cleanse themselves? Of course they could. They absolutely could. And the point is this. All of that money that, he, that Naaman brought, did that guarantee his healing? No. All of his mighty military strength, what was that to God? Worthless. Powerless. Pointless. How about that letter of recommendation that he brought? That showed, hey, I'm in great, I'm in great standing. You should take notice of me, Yahweh God. What did that do for him before God? Nothing. Not a thing. Which means then that if Naaman wants God's healing, what does he have to do to earn it? Recognize he can't earn it. It's not for sale. <laughs> because for one, if it was, nobody could afford it. And so Naaman, this rich, powerful dude, he has to accept it the same way that everybody else does, which means that he's on the same level as the poor, the weak, and the outcast, as children. He's got no leg up on anybody. And so he only gets Yahweh God's healing by his ordinary means of grace. And that ordinary means of healing by grace is absolutely offensive to the human heart. Like, if you don't think it is, you need to think about it harder. Because it absolutely is. It's extremely offensive to the human heart. And why is it so offensive to the human heart? It absolutely obliterates any vestiges of pride. We don't get to boast. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Why, Ephesians 2? So that no one may boast. And that doesn't mean we get saved by grace and faith plus works, right? We don't bring anything to the table. We have to leave it all, go into the River Jordan, and accept that cleansing healing by the grace of God. It destroys our pride. It tells us that we don't earn salvation because we've lived a good life, because we know the Bible or we're theological experts, because we've tried to live a good moral life where we're religious. All of that, God says, is worthless before him. And so what must we do? Leave it at the shore. Go into the Jordan and be cleansed. And so this ordinary plan by this ordinary person was just too much for the Nazarene's pride. And so in the face of overwhelming evidence... What did they do? They proverbially killed the messenger because they refused to kill their pride. <clears throat> we avoid shooting the messenger by killing our pride, but secondly, we avoid shooting the messenger by killing our pleasures. Now, that's the end of chapter 13. Kind of lied last week. I said we were done with 13. We're going to be in 14. I was mistaken. I forgot we had a few verses left. But I was right that we would be in 14 today. So turn with me over to the next chapter, which is 14. comes after 13, where we will see a transition to the story of Herod. 
Let's read verses 1 through 5 again. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they believed him to be a prophet. So what's going on here is that Herod hears about Jesus, all the commotion, all the mighty works, all the great teaching, and he's worried because he's concerned that Jesus is the resurrected John the Baptist, who is a guy he killed. And why did Herod have John arrested and killed? Well, because of Herod's divorced, because Herod divorced his wife in order to steal his sister-in-law from his brother. And so John called him out for it. See, not only was this an unlawful divorce and marriage, but according to Leviticus 18 and 20, this was actually considered incest by the Jewish people, which was a really big deal to them. So when John started calling Herod out, Herod didn't like that because he didn't want the people to rise up and turn against him. Rome wasn't going to put up with that, and so he didn't want to put up with that. Now, Herod, he couldn't just outright kill John. Why? Because, as the text tells us, they considered John to be this great prophet, and it would have triggered the people. And so instead, he just has him arrested. And why? Ultimately, why? What's the core reason behind why he had him arrested? Because Herod didn't like the messenger telling him that his pleasures weren't okay. You see that? He didn't like God's messenger telling him that point two, his pleasures weren't all right. They were a problem. They were sin. See, God didn't care for Herod's sexual ethics, which is one of the big issues why our culture today rejects God's messengers, isn't it? Of course it is. You better believe it is. And why? Because as Westerners, that's what we are, we're in, we're in the West, right? America's in the West, we're not in the East. As Westerners, our bias leads us to gladly accept what the Bible says about God being a God of love. We're okay with that part. No problems there. I'm okay with God loves me and want to give, gives me a really great, happy life. Like, who wouldn't want that? Sign me up. But when it comes to all that other stuff about one man and one woman for life, well, that conflicts with our pleasures. That absolutely conflicts with them. That conflicts with how I want to live my life. And for those of you who grew up in the Bon Jovi period, you know it's my life. It's, and nobody's going to tell me how to live it. Right? So back off. That's our, that's our mentality. And so what we think is, we think things like, you know what? No one's going to tell me how to live my life. Who does this Jesus think he is telling me who I can and can't sleep with? I'm fine with him being my Savior, but not this thing about him being Lord. That's a bit much. That's a bit oppressive. That seems more like slavery than it does freedom. But here's the thing. You can't have Jesus as your Savior unless you also take him as your Lord. The two go hand in hand. What is the message that both Jesus and John the Baptist have been preaching all throughout the book of Matthew that keeps popping up? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? And as we've already talked about before, that word repentance means what? Change your mind. To change your thinking. All right? And to change your mind about what? Your sin. 
And a big part of our sin relates to our pleasures, does it not? Of course it does. And so the question here then is, how do we know that we've changed our mind about our sin? Because we said a prayer once when we were seven? Does that cover it? Not necessarily. Because by God's grace, this is how we know, we've turned from our sin and are now pursuing Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the evidence for it. Which means we now pursue the pleasures that he calls us to pursue, and we turn from the pleasures that he calls us to turn from. And they're actually pleasures that will kill us. They're deadly. They're dangerous. Which is why his message is so greatly important. What kind of pleasures must we kill then? Um, Literally all of them. Every single one of them goes on the chopping block. They have to. They all have to die. Because every single one of them have been corrupted by sin. Do you love your career? Kill it. Burn it with fire. Why? It's corrupted by sin. Do you love your family? Don't kill them, but metaphorically, stop making them the center of your life. Do you love the things of this world? Money, sex, riches, fame. It's got to go. Now, don't hear me wrongly here. I'm not saying, you know, quit your job and be a vagabond or something, like homeless person. Like, we got to work, all right? But the point is here, we must surrender all of these things, career, family, uh, hobbies, all of it gets put on the altar as we surrender all to Christ. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. And why? Because when we turn to him as Savior, we turn to him as Lord and King. And that means all of our pleasures are now under his jurisdiction. Luke 14, 26 says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, does it say he won't be a very good disciple? Is that what the text says? He cannot be my disciple. And as we've talked about before, Jesus doesn't have two class of Christians. He doesn't have disciples who are like kind of super Christians and then people who got their fire insurance. No, it's all in the same category. You are a disciple of Jesus or you are a disciple of the devil. Those are the only two options here. Luke 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. John 12, 25. I could rattle off about 40 verses here, but I'm going to give you three. John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is a pretty serious message. Do you think we might not want to kill the messenger so we can hear this message? This last verse is quite fitting with John the Baptist and his life, wasn't it? Of course it was. Why? Because John was not scared to lose his life. He was not scared to lose his life as if he was not scared to call out sin if that meant losing his life. He was not scared to obey God and call out the ungodly pleasures of others. Not at all. He was determined to faithfully obey God no matter what. And so too must we. So here's my question for you, church. For us, not for you. How are we doing? Are we serving as faithful messengers of God 
who call out the sinful pleasures in one another that show up within this church? Or do we refuse to do that out of fear? When that professing believer moves in with their boyfriend, do we carry on in our relationship with them as if everything's okay? Oh, that's so great. Well, how's, how's moving in working for you? All those kind of questions. Do we do that? And again, I'm talking about Christians here, not talking about unchristians. We don't hold non-Christians to the standards of Christians, all right? So let me make that clear. But when it comes to Christians who engage in sinful passions, do we carry on in our relationship with them as if everything's okay? Or do we lovingly rebuke them and pray for them and refuse, as Paul commands us to in 1 Corinthians, to even eat with them? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to obey what Scripture calls us to do? Or are we too afraid that they might shoot the messenger and we could lose a friend or a family member simply because they hate the message. Nobody told us this was going to be easy, right? We signed up for this as servants of Christ. Christ told us over and over again it was going to be the opposite of easy. He told us it was going to be hard. Why was it going to be hard? Because the human heart wants to shoot every single messenger that comes from God. And that includes you too, to the degree that you are a faithful messenger of God. Jesus said, they hated me. Be not surprised when they hate you. And so the question comes down to this. Whose praise are we seeking? Man's or God's? The one leads to everlasting death and the other leads to everlasting life, which leads us to our final point. We avoid shooting the messenger by killing our pride, our pleasures, and finally, our praise. Look at verse 6 with me. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So here is Herod having his birthday celebration and his very way too young stepdaughter Herodias comes in and dances before them and he's so thrilled by it that he offers her anything she asks for including up to half of his kingdom. And that's not in this text but read about that part of it in other gospels. Okay, But this situation actually reminds us a lot of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11. What did he do? made a really stupid oath. And what did it result in? The death of his daughter. He said, Whoever, whatever comes out of this door, when I come back, I will sacrifice that to God. And out comes his daughter, and he weeps. Dumb oath. Don't make dumb oaths. Okay? And so here, too, Herod makes a really dumb oath, and it comes back to bite him in a big way. How? 
He gets himself trapped into a corner where doing the right thing means he must not only look foolish in front of his guests, but also end up probably sleeping on the couch as his wife is upset with him. I don't know if they had couches back then, whatever. And so what does Herod do? Does he make his life more difficult in that moment because of his fear of God being greater than fear of man? Is that what he does? No, he doesn't. He takes the easy road and has God's messenger beheaded to avoid losing the praise of others. So how about us? Are we seeking the praise of God or the praise of men? Or might we be like Herod, who did whatever was necessary to keep man's applause coming? Think about this. When you know what God commands of you, and you know your spouse doesn't seem to be interested in obeying those same commands, do you obey God, even if that means your spouse is going to give you the grumpy look? Or do you disobey God because you love the applause and praise of your spouse? How about your children? How about your friends, your family members? How about this one? When God calls us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to share the good news of salvation, and to make disciples, do we obey? Or does the idea of sharing the gospel with a coworker, with knocking on our neighbor's doors, and, or speaking to that family member, terrify you? Right now, I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty tempted to lay it on thick about our door-to-door ministry, but I'm going to leave that for you to work out. But here's the question. Why is our modern church so terrible at evangelism? I mean, am I wrong on that? No, we're terrible at it. Why is that the case? I think it's fair to say because we haven't fully killed our pride, our pleasures, and our love for the praise of man. Look, I'm not a date setter when it comes to Christ's return. But at the same time, Do we really believe that the time is short? Do we? We should. Do we believe that Christ is coming back for his church and then the wrath of God will be poured out in a way that is horrifyingly unimaginable? Do we believe that? If not, go read Revelation 19. Or, in our pride, do we convince ourselves that we'll have decades and decades to serve God Once we're done with our career, once we're done raising our young children, once we're done with getting our dream house built, fill in the pleasure that needs to die. Church, the time is so very short. Very short. Do you believe that? Do your actions show that you believe that? See, like Noah... We only have so many minutes left to warn of the coming judgment and to tell others of the only ark of safety that can save them from said judgment. And what ark is that? It's Christ. So are we living in light of this reality? Are we living as if we really believe what we claim to believe is true? Or are we pridefully living for our pleasures and the praise of man? In verse 58, it says that Jesus did few mighty works in Nazareth because of their unbelief. 
And this isn't telling us that Jesus was powerless or limited somehow by man. That's not what it's getting at here. Silly stuff. It's telling us the same simple truth of how God's mighty power works. How does it work? How has God sovereignly ordained his power to work? What is the common form of that? It's through belief. It's through belief. So how about you this morning? Have you killed your pride, your passions, and have you killed your love for the praise of your fellow man? Or are you still at war with God's messenger? Are you fighting his messengers? If so, you need to recognize that ship has sailed. For that messenger, being Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, has already been killed, and he's not going to die again. He humbly came and set aside the pleasures of heaven okay, to receive not praise, but scorn. And why? So that you and I can receive the praise that he's had for all of eternity from his heavenly Father. And how does that come to us? It comes to us simply by washing, just as Naaman did. Not in the River Jordan, but by being washed by Christ's blood, which, as Scripture tells us, makes us whiter than snow. Have you been washed? Have you set aside your pride and recognized that salvation comes in the ordinary means of grace through faith in Christ? I trust that you have. By the grace and power of God, may we kill our pride, may we kill our pleasures, and may we kill our love of man's praise so that we as a church, as individuals within this church, may live for the only praise that truly matters. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for this church. I pray for that, that this text, Father, would penetrate our hearts, that nobody here would shoot the messenger today, that we would hear the message, that we would understand that the messenger from this message is actually you. And you choose, in your sovereignty, in your providence, to bring it through faulty messengers to faulty hearers so that one day we might stand before you without fault, without blemish, without blame because of the grace you've given and the blood of Jesus that was spilt. Father, I just pray that as a church that you would wake us up from our slumber that you would help us to recognize the time is so very short. So help us to kill our pleasures, to recognize that hobbies in and of themselves aren't bad things. Careers in and of themselves aren't bad things. Family in and of itself is not a bad thing. None of these things are. All, they all are created by you and come from you. But when they become ultimate things, they become idolatry before your eyes, which warps our hearts and alienates us in our relationship from you. So, Father, we desperately plead to you, as our Abba Father, that you would help us to walk in holiness, that you would protect your people, that you would help us to be students of your word, to be in your word, growing in your word, and that we would, out of that desire and that pleasure we find in you, that satisfaction that we find in you, that we would go forth without any pride at all, in great humility, just as Christ did, into a dark world that is suffering and dying because they are in desperate need of the only healing that comes from you. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing our closing song. Oh, great.